Welcome to Launched. I'm Charlie Chapman, and today I'm excited to bring you the editor-in-chief of 9to5Mac, Chance Miller. Chance, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Charlie. I'm excited about this. I've been listening for a while, and I'm honored. I'm a little intimidated based on some of the past guests you've had, but... <laughs> it's so funny when people say that, because I'm, I'm the one intimidated. I'm like, I'm, I'm talking to the editor-in-chief of 9to5Mac. We got to hang out quite a bit at the talk show at WWDC, so I feel like we've got some chemistry. Broke the ice a little yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah. That definitely helps. No, I, this is going to be really cool. I think there's, there's a lot of people... Uh, a lot of people on the show, almost probably all, everybody that listens to this show, uh, <laughs> reads 9to5Mac in some capacity. Um, but there's also a decent segment of the audience here that is also interested in 9to5Mac from a sort of press uh, point oh, yeah. of view because they, they publish something, yeah. they make something that they want attention on. And so uh, there's kind of a bunch of different facets that I think are really fascinating about where you live uh at the sort of intersection of a bunch of different pieces in this community. So I'm, I'm excited to get into it. I didn't even think about that angle. That's, that's interesting. I like that. Uh, but before we get into any of that, I want to introduce everybody to who you are. So the three questions I always ask everybody to start the show is, where are you from? Do you have a formal education related to what you do? And then we can talk about what your career was like that led you to 9to5Mac. So I am the editor-in-chief of 9to5Mac. I'm from Indiana originally. Now I live in Waco, Texas. No formal education really in writing or journalism. I went to Indiana University, but that was for informatics, which is like informatics. It's like data, and there was some Python involved. I don't really. I have. I don't think I've ever heard that term. I think in, it might be a fake informatics. word. Informatics. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's it. I, I, it's like the episode that was a community episode where there's like a fake class yeah. that a professor who's not actually a professor just made up. Hopefully it wasn't fake. I pl- I paid them quite a bit of money. But that's really interesting. Okay, well that's that's something I'll uh, definitely have to go Google later. It's on my diploma. I'm looking at it right now, so I know it's informatics. <laughs> but as you can see, I didn't take a whole lot of it in. So, so I it sounds like that was uh, sort of. Com- computer it adjacent at least yeah it was it was a lot of like writing python scripts and mysql database stuff and i because okay. i've been yeah. doing nine to five max since high school so there was a part of me that didn't really want to go to college or think i needed uh, to go to, go to college but i was like i need a fallback plan right and at the time it was like nine to five mac that the job seems too good to be true and i'm always like it's going to end at some point like <laughs> I need I need to have some skill that I can offer. Okay, so it sounds like we need to rewind then. Oh boy. Uh, before the education to get to how 9to5Mac started. Or not 9to5Mac, but your involvement in 9to5Mac started. So, I, for context, I'm 26. So, I started when I was in like early high school, late like middle school, I started like a few different blogs mostly about Android actually. Okay. Then I was reading 9to5Mac and obviously following like Mark Gurman and Seth, our publisher. And at a certain point, I was like, I should just email Seth and ask for a job. Wow. That's enterprising. A 14-year-old, 15-year-old. So I emailed him and 
surprisingly, he got back to me within like 30 minutes and was like, do you want to write for nine to five Google? And I said, sure. Wow. From there, it was really nine to five Google for a couple of years. Then nine to five Mac is like the night editor. So I would go to first high school, then college, and then come home and run nine to five Mac at night. So what does that mean? Run nine to five Mac at night? Like you're not a server admin or something. Basically just being like on call to cover all of the news that came in over like it was like three to 11 PM basically. So covering everything that came in during that time span. Is that mostly international then? Like who, who's publishing stuff in the late afternoon in North America? Well, 3 PM Eastern time would have been like what noon California time. So there was a surprising amount of stuff. Yeah. But then it's like once it got to like eight o'clock, so five o'clock on the West Coast, it was like the graveyard shift, basically. Like you're just kind of hanging around in yeah. case anything happened, usually coming out of like China or Australia. But yeah, I did quite a few years on the night shift. And then 20, 2019, I became editor in chief for the entire thing. Okay. Yeah. That's so interesting. It, uh, I believe so. This is going to be one of those weird time things. A recording I already made, but hasn't come out yet. So the next person that's on, I believe they started in 2019 as well. I started Dark Noise in 2019. Yeah. It feels like 2019 is this weird... I mean, part of it is that's when SwiftUI came out. Oh, yeah. Um, But a lot of the people I know, we actually didn't launch with SwiftUI because it was too new. Mm -hmm. But there's something about that year and kind of the years around it where it seems like there's a... There was a specific, like, I don't know not graduating class, but like a specific subset of group of people that sort of came out of that little section of time. For me, it was my colleague, Zach Hall. He had been editor in chief for four or five years at that point. And he was kind of ready to get out of the day-to-day writing and that type of grind and do more Mm. like editor at large style things and helping with headlines and smaller things like that, like big picture tidbits and things like that. And yeah, I guess I was just next in line in the succession plan and I just graduated. So I was, I was ready for it and I was happy to get off the graveyard. I have a question uh, in my notes here that is, what exactly does editor in chief mean? But I guess before that, even you just, we've just gone through three different roles that I'm curious about. So yeah. like, okay, your graveyard shift, mm-hmm. what you were talking about there, yeah. this is, you know, sort of an entry level, whatever. I'm curious what that was. And then you know, what is the change to editor-in-chief? Like, what are your actual roles there? So during the, like, graveyard shift, it was just me. So I wasn't really managing other people. The mm. morning, afternoon crowd, they would be gone, and I would just be there by myself, like, writing things as they came in, editing myself, writing my own headlines, making my own graphics. What does as they came in mean? Is there, like, some sort of tool you're using to ingest a inbound emails slash Twitter accounts slash a million other things or what? Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, it's like a leak gets posted to Twitter about the iPhone 15. Like that's happened like a dozen times this week. And it's kind of like you probably happened a dozen times today nowadays. Yeah, exactly. And you kind of wait around for something like that to happen and then you got to get it up and you never know when that's going to happen or when those stories are going to come in. So you're kind of just sitting there you're looking for things and you're investigating to find things that don't just fall into your lap, but right. Things do fall into your lap too. Like you have to be on top of that side of things too. How important is speed in our community? There's like Mac rumors is sort of the 
everything just kind of flies through a really narrow channel it feels like and yeah. there's a lot of stuff posted almost instantly but not necessarily vetted and then there's like you know max stories or something where very low volume but big articles that are mm-hmm. a lot different in terms of content or whatever and nine to five is sort of in this interesting middle ground there where like uh yeah it definitely feels more curated and vetted but speed still feels like it's important speed is definitely a factor but I do think part of our goal is to cover things, but then also provide the full context and offer, we call it like the nine to five max take. You'll see it at the bottom of a yeah, lot of stories. Yeah. I like that you guys added that. Uh, I don't remember when, what redesign that was added, but it was kind of like that. It kind of gives us a chance to, to like inject more opinion and like humor and wit into things where, we keep like the first half of the story, like here's the facts, here's what the report said, and then yeah, break it down a little bit more personalized at the bottom. And I think in terms of speed, sometimes we'll publish quickly and then go in and add the take, add a bunch more context. Mm. But for the most part, I think we try to find that perfect balance right from the start. Because like you said, there's always a race between like Mac rumors and 9to5Mac. I think part of what I've done, I think in the three or four years I've been like editor in chief has kind of pulled back a little bit from the speed and the idea of being mm. first at whatever cost it takes and trying to provide more context and not just publish something that's a headline in one sentence, just for the sake of saying we were first, here we go. We were first and there, somebody clicks the link and then there's nothing in the story. And I think that frustrates people. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cause like I, I'd like to hear what the take, like, part of the reason for why speed is important. But I can say like as a consumer, uh, nine to five is probably the most chatty site that I s- actually subscribe to in my RSS feed. Mm. Like I love, I love the verge. I like, I like Mac rumors. I like lots of other yeah. sites, but I can't handle that amount. But nine to five is like right below that the threshold th- yeah. where it's got all that stuff, mm-hmm. but it's enough that I can actually kind of keep up with it. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely something to having too much and it not being vetted. But yeah. why is it important to be fast? I mean, the reasons are probably pretty obvious, but the reasons are it's worth stating. The reasons are kind of obvious and it's the reasons are kind of lame or annoying. It's things like <laughs> Google will favor you if you were first or you're fastest to get something up. And then if you were first and The Verge sees it through you and they give you the link. Like, mm. Yeah. That helps SEO and all of that kind of, I like to call SEO like a black box sort of and kind of like a sham, I think, to a somewhat of a degree, but it's something we have to factor in at least a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious too about like clickbait, you know, yeah. headlines, because that's, that's an area where it's easy to say you should just never make engaging headlines and they should always be perfectly informative, but nine to five is also a business that has to employ people uh and to like survive in this world there's an element of that and so how do you like balance that uh that whole thing so we do clickbait things obviously sometimes i don't think we do it as often as other people i don't think when we're writing a headline we're necessarily thinking like this is like gonna inflame people or get people to click or make people angry enough that they click there's just a certain balance between that side of it and then also making the headline informative and giving you just enough of the story that you understand what's 
what's happening and why that's a story. But then part of what we like to do too is add humor or wit to the title. Like that's not clickbait, but it's engaging. Someone will click the link because they thought it was funny or they want to know why we were made that specific joke in the headline. I think that's a good compromise between the ultra clickbait, really bad stuff. And then also just being really bland. There's a middle ground. Yeah, that's the trick. It's like, and that's one of the nice things about, you know, not being the New York Times or the paper of record or whatever is like part of the fun of especially like tech blogs, like the history of tech blogs is inside jokes and referring back to uh, whatever the sort of running story is Mm -hmm. of the year or whatever. Um, That is an enjoyable part of it. And you're right. It's like it's engaging. But in my head, that's not really clickbait. And yeah, I guess I don't really see nine to five doing the like, you know, you'll never guess what blah, blah, blah. Unless again, it's like obviously a joke. Yeah, that's exactly. We would never do. There's a certain website that covers a lot of things that also has one. <laughs> I already know what you're talking one about. One <laughs> specific guy that covers Apple stuff. And that's his headline. Every single time Apple just revealed the major problem with X, yeah. Y, and Z. Or you'll never guess what Apple just said. And we won't do that. Like. That's the line. That's the line we won't cross. Yeah. I'm no, sure some that, people that's... can work out who I'm referring to. <laughs> it's not Mac rumors. I'll say that. It's not Mac rumors. Yeah. I mean, from the outside, at least, it seems like uh, you all over at 9 to 5 have a friendly sort of competitive relationship oh, yeah. with Mac rumors. It, it was years ago, 9 to 5 Mac was a little bit more aggressive or toxic. I don't know the right word to say it, but... The whole the whole industry was too like nine to five Mac mm. was young. It was a business. You have to do what you have to do to grow, I guess. Right. But you also make enemies. But I think <laughs> I think over like the past decade or so we've we've cleaned it up and everybody's friendly, like Mac Rumors has cleaned it up, Apple Insider, like we all get along. Yeah, that's that's really the the vibe I've gotten. Um, since I kind of entered into the Apple, yeah, I don't know, news e- sphere or whatever is, yeah, everybody seems pretty friendly. Of course, people call each other out and take jabs oh, yeah. and whatever, but like, um, there's a general, like, we all have our own kind of take. Maybe that's part of it yeah. is everybody's settled on like exactly their take of things. Like you're, I always see you involved in, uh, you know, whatever relay FM podcast is up to these days and then yeah there's kind of a back and forth going on there and i i think that that's kind of fun it is it's things like the nine to five max take like let me do like take kind of take jabs at people or like joke around like there was a story a few weeks ago where i got to make fun of my curly in a post <laughs> just because i could and things like that like it just lowers the temperature on everything i think and i'll make fun of mac yeah. rumors in a post too like there's no bad blood at all yeah and that's why you can do stuff like that right uh you can't get away with uh little jabs when there's actual bad blood there yeah Uh, because then people yeah people get upset (laughs) so you described uh the night shift yeah so then what was the change from not just the night shift but like a i i guess daily blogger whatever not night shift version of that nine to five to editor chief like what are the changed uh responsibilities there it really was taking over more of the leadership and managing. So we have a really small team, but there are enough of us to where 
somebody kind of has to like steer the ship and assign who's covering what to each person and how many do you have around so full-time writers we have four of us okay then we have a couple of people who are like freelance kind of like available and they'll they'll write things when nobody else is around or when they have a topic that they really like then we have two full-time youtubers and some copy editors and but full-time writers is four Okay. Wow. That yeah, that's smaller than I was yeah. thinking in my head. Is there much shared between uh the different nine to fives, nine to five Android or is it nine to five Google, nine to five toys, you know, all those? There's a lot of crossover and like our Slack is like a singular Slack but divided into different rooms for each site. That's smart. And like the nine to five Google guys will have something come in that is kind of Apple related. So what they'll do is we have a feature in our CMS called distribute. And it sends hmm. a story from, in this case, like 9to5Google to the 9to5Mac homepage, and it appears like smaller. So that like the Apple people who care about that particular news can see it on our site. But yeah. it doesn't, it, the reach is not as, like it doesn't go out in RSS, for example. The reach isn't okay. quite as, as wide. Yeah. So that's like the biggest level of crossover. But they're run pretty separately as yeah. far as the uh, newsroom, if you will. Each site has its own editor-in-chief. Okay, so you're you're managing the people themselves. Are, are you also... Like, how much, uh, how much decision-making are you or the team making about, like, what you write about? Or is that more at the individual person level? So, usually how it'll work is somebody, if they find something they want to post, they'll put it in our Slack and ask me if I think it's worth a post and if they can do it. And I'll 98% of the time, it's a yes. Like I'm not shooting down ideas too often. And, but almost all of like the editorial decisions are on the responsibilities of the editors in chief, like our publisher, Seth, he's not involved okay. yeah. in day-to-day editorial decisions, really. So it almost is like an extension of your curation yeah necessarily not the words obviously but the in terms of what's being written about kind of the general vibe of of the site um in terms of content and that's where like the the like vetting and the filtering comes in a little bit in comparison to us and other sites is when i do say no to something or we discuss as a team and decide not to cover something there's always a reason like I think sometimes there might be a misconception like why Mac Rumors covered something and we didn't or why we covered something and Mac mm. Rumors didn't. But at least on our end, like every post that goes up is vetted and like we put our name behind it. But there's things that we pass on all the time. Right. Yeah, I have to imagine your inbound is crazy. Yeah. Uh, and actually, that's a good point to sort of dovetail into what I referred to earlier, which is like, Probably a lot of people listening to this uh, episode are part of that uh, that inbound. Yeah. Like everybody, I don't know how many people I've had on the show that have talked about the process of blasting out emails, which is a horrible yeah. feeling process <laughs> from our end because you, I don't know, we're all trained to hate email oh, and you yeah. feel bad adding email to somebody else. Um, so yeah, I'm curious what that is like from your perspective and if you have advice for people doing it or if your advice is just please don't. <laughs> no, I, we, we, I rely on it. So people emailing to share their updates, their apps, like it's iOS 17 season. 
So we're fully in swing of like seeing those emails and assigning them to different people and putting them on our lists. And one piece of advice I like to give people is it's so much easier from our end if what you send, especially if like you're ready to launch something, is a full like like imagery press press assets mm. of some sort. That makes it a lot easier on our end. And when an email comes in and it has all of that and it has a clear breakdown of like what the app is, who you are, what's new, it's a lot more likely that that'll catch our attention and get get covered or at least get like discussed and considered for coverage because we miss things. Like we'll get emails from a developer and we just won't see it because we get so many and some slip through the cracks. I'm assuming this is true. And based on what you said, that's definitely sounds like it is. But I always tell people it's like, don't feel bad if you don't get a response yeah. because it's like these people are getting so much uh so much email and requests from people and i'm assuming it's very it's like in waves probably too right it's in waves sometimes you're desperate for more and sometimes you just exactly. have way more than you could possibly ever look at it's sort of like you touched on like mac stories for example when you email like 9 to 5 mac what we do is going to be a lot different than what federico or john does just because we don't go as in-depth as them. So right. that means I think we can probably say yes to more things than Mac Stories does, but you're not going to get like 1,500 words on your app. It's Yeah, exactly. The volume is way too high for us to do that. If you have a press kit mm-hmm. that's come to you that has images ready to go, it has like the price, the launch date, yeah. you know, the sort of uh, obvious necessities for an article, then you can just focus on like, your impression of the thing and right. your take on the thing and, and it like makes a, it a lot a test flight easier link. yeah well that's yeah that's another one is like a test flight link um and you can kind of judge is it even worth my time if you've never seen the thing before yeah. you can like look at images right and if you send something that's going to require like us to in like respond to and multiple times to, like get the information we need there's a higher chance that the second or third email is going to get lost and we're going to miss it. Yeah. It's such a tricky balance because in an ideal world, we'd say yes to everyone and cover everything, but that's just not feasible. Like, especially like this time of year when there's so many updates coming out. Right. And your, your use, your listeners or listeners, your readers wouldn't want that either. Right. Like, like this time of year. So we'll probably vet every app and do individual posts for certain things. We'll do a big roundup of, here are the best iOS apps that support lux or interactive widgets or something like that. But we have to, it kind of diminishes the value if we do a post on every single app. Whereas if readers know that what we choose to make a separate standalone post is it was worth our time. So it's worth their time. Everybody's had this experience that I've talked to, but it's like, it's not necessarily ideal, but it just, it makes sense that, once there's there's a rapport there yeah just to like be frank about it dark noise is more likely to get pressed because you know you can just ping me to ask a question and i can answer it and there's already a rapport there it's easier and and i went through the whole phase of you know sending a bunch of emails and never getting a response too um but yeah, that's that, like, that's another piece of it is like, <laughs> I guess just thinking of the people that you're sending emails to as humans, uh, that's probably always a helpful thing. And I don't think like 
just because we didn't respond or we didn't cover one update or your first launch or something, like, don't stop. Like, email us every update. Yeah. And if there's, like, a consistent pattern of updates or we start to notice your name coming through the inbox on a regular basis with new features and new new angles on how to contact us, then chances are we'll see it. Like, try, try, try again. In that vein, uh, like, with Discovery, we were talking about inbound, but there's also you guys going out and trying to find articles. Yeah. How has the fact that uh, <laughs> the landing place for our community yeah. is just massively fractured, how has that impacted what you all do? Because it was really nice for a while that everybody just kind of lived in one place for a long time there. Yeah, I think we might have taken it for granted a little bit. <laughs> but I think how we've kind of managed is Twitter is still a great source for finding things as they come in but only now from certain sources like if i want mm. to cover a new app or something or a smaller piece of news that like our community cares about but maybe the broader business community on twitter doesn't care about like that's harder to find now just because it mm. might be on mastodon it might be on twitter or it might be on threads so it's been hard and we used to have a whole bunch of different like bots set up in our slack where it would feed in tweets in real time like as they came in from certain accounts like mark german for example or right or apple itself tim cook phil schiller like those tweets would come in immediately so there's more manual work involved now and we have to make a better effort to check beyond twitter and there's definitely been times where we've missed something or we haven't gotten to something like as quickly as we would have liked just because it was posted somewhere that we weren't actively monitoring that day or that right. hour. It goes back to us being four people, basically. It's almost, it, it's weird though, because on the flip side, it almost makes something like nine to five uh, a greater service because yeah. <laughs> I love, yeah. it's, it's a place you can actually just go to. I definitely, my RSS uh, readership has definitely gone up oh, same. since the great fracturing simply same. because there isn't one app I open. Now I just choose between four or five different apps whenever yeah. I'm in the grocery store. And it's always a different one to see, is there something new here? And so it's just as often that I open Net Newswire as it is that I open Twitter, that it is that I open threads or whatever yeah. one I happen to be checking. And from like a publishing like business standpoint too, I think the downfall of Twitter or whatever you want to call it hasn't really affected us. Twitter doesn't drive traffic. It never has. Oh, really? See, that's interesting. It's gotten worse, I think, honestly, before Elon Musk took over. But the algorithm downranks things that have links in them so heavily. Yeah. And obviously, Twitter is actively trying to get you to stay in their app versus right. jump out to 9to5Mac.com. That's why people have been doing the like tweet threads where the link's at the very bottom yep. of the thread, but everything else is native, sort of. It's it's gotten really bad recently too with the launch of like this creator payout system that Twitter mm. is doing where there are like Apple focused accounts on Twitter that their idea of posting the news is like sharing a tweet with like a kind of clickbaity tweet, an image, and the source is either they'll tag you in the image, which on Twitter means absolutely nothing. Nobody sees that. Oh yeah. Or they'll 
tag you in like a follow-up tweet with the link, which nobody sees because Twitter downranks it. But nobody it. will link directly to you anymore yep. because... Oh, that's fascinating. That's interesting. So I never really thought of it this way, mm-hmm. but one of the reasons I was on the... Or I guess still am, but now we're all fractured on the like Macedon really needs yeah. quote tweets was because I can't tell you how many times I would read an article uh, in Net Newswire. It's a nine to five Mac article. Yeah. And I'd be like, oh, I want to like share a take on this or more likely just an eyes emoji because I don't actually <laughs> have anything interesting to say. But what I want to do, I don't want to like share a link to it because I always just felt like it didn't look as nice. Yeah. I would literally open Twitter, search for nine to five, find your... uh find your post yeah. and then i would quote tweet that but i never thought about that actually probably did perform better than if i had oh yeah literally linked directly to it it probably did and i think big picture though like the fact that twitter downranks links and they always have and it's gotten worse recently but traffic has always been so bad it's like even when links weren't really downranked as bad as they are now it still wasn't driving traffic I just think people overestimated the impact that Twitter had on publishers. Yeah. Well, because the impact was on the, like, was on the inbound, right? Yeah. It was so important to gathering the news. Exactly. Yeah. It was much yeah, more of a news gathering, like, I don't, like technical platform for us than it was an outbound promotional. Like, this is how we get fifty percent of our traffic is through Twitter. That's not true. Right. So what is the primary source? Is it, you know, people going to the website, RSS, Google, or, you know, Facebook or some other things? Not Facebook. I know that, but (laughs) if you want to find a company that's treated publishers worse than even Google or Twitter, it's Facebook, but we don't need to get into that. Yeah. There's a long history there. I would say the vast majority of traffic is probably through Google and that's through people searching but it's also through what Google shows people and like their like discover feeds and stuff. Like when they go to mm. Google and search a single term and they see their like there's like a curated part that shows them like an algorithmic timeline sort of. It's particularly big on the Google iOS app and on Android. Yeah. And if you get a story that the Google al- algorithm favors, it's going to get picked up quite a bit more. But I don't think 9to5Mac is as heavy, as as reliant on Google traffic as some other sites. I think part of it, too, is 9to5Mac just has a better direct relationship with our readers. And that comes in the form of people going directly to 9to5Mac.com. People subscribing to like our newsletter and getting it that way, adding us to RSS feeds. When you control the relationship between the site and the reader directly, you don't have to rely as much on... How the Google SEO system changes and how Twitter changes and Reddit changes, those changes have a smaller impact, like just because you're less vulnerable to them. Yeah. As anybody who's an app developer, uh, (laughs) not on the Mac anyway, uh, knows like it's not really a choice that we have. You know, the the algorithm giveth and the algorithm taketh away, I guess, too. (laughs) But it's that's one of the reasons why some people definitely want that you know direct relationship um and yeah it seems like the the apple community in particular obviously they've been known for you know being sort of design centric and following the long history of of that for a long time but 
maybe it's because of Twitter. I don't really know the, maybe it's because of RSS. I don't know, but it seems like in my like Android Google days, there was much less emphasis on like everything needing to be a reverse chronological timeline that's curated and controlled. Yeah. And there was a lot more being okay with like letting the algorithm, uh, you know, feed you stuff and make it convenient yeah. for you. In the Apple community, there's always been a, a stronger preference towards control. Maybe that's what the, maybe that's the word. It's the control part. And that I think is why we have such a great direct relationship with people is they want to be in control of how they read us. And they, they want to read us regardless of whether the Twitter algorithm or the Google algorithm shows us to them. Yeah. Well, that's a nice place to be uh, for sure. This episode of launched is brought to you by Kaleidoscope, the file comparison and merge tool for Mac. Kaleidoscope's best-in-class merge tool has just gotten a huge productivity boost with Git file history integration. You can now see all revisions made to a particular file and quickly find and select which revisions you want to compare. This is on top of the fantastic three-way and unified merge views, syntax highlighting, themes, text filters, drag-and-drop support, and so much more that makes Kaleidoscope the best way to resolve merge conflicts on the Mac. Now, just to get personal for a second here, I've actually been someone who has always just used Xcode's built-in comparison tool to check my code changes before committing them to Git because it was fine and it was right there. But the new version of Xcode that's currently in beta actually completely messed up my workflow. Uh, So I've actually been hunting around for a replacement. And Kaleidoscope's new Git integrations actually kind of came at a perfect time for me. Now, before I commit, I can pop open my changes in Kaleidoscope right from the terminal and very easily see what I'm changing in a view that perfectly fits my brain. For me, that's Kaleidoscope's fluid view, but there's a couple different views they have, and I recommend trying them out and seeing which one kind of works with your brain the best. So if you're like me and after downloading the new Xcode here in a couple weeks, you find your workflow is totally messed up, I cannot recommend trying out Kaleidoscope enough. It, it really is a wonderful Mac app just generally um, and specifically for solving merge conflicts. It is just absolutely excellent. Kaleidoscope subscriptions start at $8 a month. And if you bought a license to the previous Kaleidoscope 3, you'll get a special discount on the first year. And launched listeners can get a special offer by entering the coupon code LAUNCHED to get a 10% discount on their first year. That's L-A-U-N-C-H-E-D for a 10% discount on your first year. Thank you so much to Kaleidoscope for sponsoring this episode of Launched. Part of the direct relationship with your readers, I think, also extends to advertising. So you can yeah. be vulnerable to Google AdSense and the changes and their ad rates and having no control over what type of ads show up on your website next to your content. Or you can sell your ads yourself. And we use Google AdSense. We use Google AdSense to a lesser degree now than we did a couple of years ago, and we're kind of still moving away from relying entirely on AdSense. But when you have that direct relationship with the advertisers themselves, you have a better idea of first and foremost, how much money you're going to make, but then also you vet the clients that you take advertising deals from. It's not just some random company that's bidding through Google AdSense to appear on our site, which you never know if that company is going to stay in business or whatever they're doing. Whereas we can vet them and 
what are those is that for like sponsored content or are you also selling uh like banner ads yourself so in-house we sell banner ads we sell sponsored posts we sell sponsored integrations into youtube videos and of course we sell podcast ads the biggest thing we've been doing this year is expanding the our banner system to replace google adsense ads that appear like in line with a story Mm -hmm. so if you're reading something on a story that has google adsense enabled and it's more than i think the threshold's like 500 words google adsense like inserts more ads it's like one ad for every 500 words whereas if we sell a native integration ourselves we just put one ad in there it pays better than google and it's a higher quality ad nice i guess that's an area where being part of a sort of family of sites helps too right it does and a lot of the packages we sell to advertisers extend to they might buy a bundle that targets nine to five mac nine to five google and electric there's a lot of cross and just the infrastructure for supporting all of Mm -hmm. that yeah that's yeah that's really cool that's cool to hear i don't know it's it's cool to hear uh (laughs) i feel like from the outside at least it's always just doom and gloom uh when it comes to you know uh news on the internet yeah it it sounds like and it feels like from the outside too that uh nine to five is in a is actually in kind of healthy place it's interesting too that like our traffic has been relatively stable over the past couple of years. There was a big spike during COVID for whatever reason. Mm. That also corresponded to the year of iOS 14 home screen widgets. I think like some developers, <laughs> we benefited a whole lot from that. Our post about Widgetsmith did like, it was like our top post of the year by a huge margin. It, the interest in widgets was just crazy. Like we'll never yeah, match that, was that a September. nuts year. Yeah, yeah. And well, and that was also the like 24-hour notice year. Yep. Uh, yep. And s- s- me like at a very personal level, that was the first time like like I had like The Verge reach out to me to like give a comment on that specific instance. Oh, yeah. So it, it was like this crazy swirl of a whole bunch of stuff happening. And then yeah, everybody's collective enthusiasm for one of the nicest people in our community uh with David Smith uh succeeding wildly was was really fun. The thing with that type of traffic bump, going back to the business side of things, is when you have that big of a spike and then it goes back down to normal levels, your ad rates are going to stay the same or they're going to go back down to what they were. Mm -hmm. But when you're selling directly to an advertiser, they can, like, their package, that can change over time. Like, if they buy an integration into, like, X number of news articles for a week, those ads stay in those stories forever. They don't dynamically change right. like AdSense ads do. Yeah, yeah. So our advertising prices can stay the same. And sure, we miss out a little bit on maybe what we'd make extra if a story blows up and it has a native ad versus a that has a flat price versus a Google AdSense ad that scales based on the traffic. But in terms of stability, it's just so good and so important to what we've been able to do to have that relationship. I guess that smooths, smooths things out. Uh, but it also means, yeah, you can't take it. Like you don't necessarily get, you know, the big or the business doesn't necessarily get a big pay bump when something goes bananas, uh, viral, 
But then the flip side is, you know, that doesn't create the incentive to just create all these viral hits either. That probably goes back to the clickbait thing a little bit. Right. Yeah. Because if you if you just pump out a bunch of clickbait and one or two of them pops and goes super viral and you're you can make all your money off of that one thing going viral, then that's maybe more viable. But if you're selling ad slots and what really matters is like your consistent readership across all of yeah. your posts, then uh, maybe that that helps incentivize you less to you know chase those viral moments. And to be clear, like most of our, not most, but the vast majority of our storage stories still have ads and ads in them. Like we're still scaling this up. Yeah. Yeah. But like seeing how it works and seeing how well it's been working, it's, it's just that direct relationship with advertisers and the reader. And I was listening to your episode with Chris Lolly, where he kind of talked about this in regards to YouTube ads too. Hmm. I think it's clear that so many creators and publishers want to distance themselves as much as possible from AdSense and being vulnerable to the whims of Google to where he prefers his direct relationship with sponsors and we prefer it. And hopefully maybe it makes Google get their stuff together and improve AdSense as a product. But yeah, when you look at a site like Mac stories or Mac stories or podcasts like relay FM and, Everybody wants that direct control. I mean, I think you can even, you know, there's a, there's definitely a theme in the last, you know, five or whatever years of like a hesitancy towards the the big platform owners, right? I mean, yeah. it's obviously started with Facebook, but then everybody, it's kind of like anybody who owns a big platform and you see how much control they have over it, it's kind of scary and everybody wants to distance themselves a little. But I think you're also seeing that in the market as well, like Substack. While, yes, it is a platform, I almost feel like it as a platform came out of that desire for people to want a more direct relationship with their readers, right? There's Um, nothing more direct than getting into people's inboxes for good or bad. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so we definitely... It's a, a constant conversation in, you know, the app developer scene with subscriptions and i mean we talk about that constantly here but yeah part of the deal with subscriptions is yes you might have less people yes you're less likely to go viral or whatever but you now have like a group of people who are patronizing you essentially uh because they like your product and if you can keep them happy you will keep making money and like that relationship is a lot healthier than uh your relationship being a lot stronger to like your source of income being some other yeah. third party in reality. And that's who you're really trying to work towards. Um, and yeah, Google AdSense and, and Google search uh, yeah. for any, anybody in news. Those are probably <laughs> that's, that's where a lot of your relationship lives in terms of where the actual money comes from. Absolutely. And then you have the side of like the affiliate programs side of things like Amazon and a few other ones, but those can go away. Were you were you at nine to five when they were still doing uh, mm-hmm. the App Store affiliate program? Yep, that's what I was just about to say. Because that like changed everything, right? It changed everything to a degree. It already been going down, kind of. I think with the change towards more subscription based applications. Because mm. I can't remember if they ever. I think App Store affiliate gave you a commission on a subscription app but it wasn't as lucrative if it was a one-time purchase or something like that. 
Oh, I didn't think about that. It, I, I guess that was around that time, wasn't it? And the writing had been on the wall, too, that it was kind of dying. So it was the thing about that, though, that was so scary was not the loss of the iTunes affiliate income, even though that did sting. It was like a great reminder that, hey, you can get an email from this one of these big companies and they'll say they're discontinuing whatever it is you rely yeah. on. For your, I mean, look at Reddit and Christian and Apollo. It's at any moment, those yeah. companies will just screw you. Yeah, it is. That's the thing with a relationship with a company is like, no matter how personal it might actually feel, the person that you're interacting with isn't actually the company and somebody above them can make a decision uh, that completely, you know, messes you up. And even if that person doesn't want it to happen, it'll, it, it often still will. And so you always have to have that in mind. I mean, we had a situation where an affiliate company downsized and really cut their rates and we went to them as a longtime partner and we said hey like we're one of your biggest clients or partners can we work together and it turns out the rep that the rep that we use at that company had been laid off as part of those yep and then nobody else at the company would return an email it's like that's the thing yeah once you lose that contact it's like no matter how strong long-term healthy relationship you had it can just end on a on a nice turn like that it's one interesting parallel between developers and online publishing i hadn't thought about it that way so another like area that i kind of wanted to talk about um that i find interesting with with what you do specifically is kind of the the separation between blogging and journalism and i'm doing air quotes over here which you can't see uh because we have our cameras turned off now but like it feels like you know nine to five fits squarely in what most people would consider a blog but yeah especially over the last couple months, I feel like I've seen a couple different, uh, what I would think of as pieces of journalism uh, come out of you. One of them with the piece on Bridge, um, the keyboard company, which mm-hmm. was fascinating. And then and then your piece on Vision Pro, which we can get into here in a little bit with your experience there. But I'm just curious, like, do you guys, is that something that you guys talk about a lot or is it just kind of a thing kind of in the back of your head that you don't really think about? We don't really think about it. I mean, the hardest part, or really... Rather, the only time it comes up is when you're telling somebody what you do for a living. And it's like, mm, I could say I'm yeah. a blogger, I could say I'm a journalist, it doesn't really matter. I don't... I guess at the end of the day, the difference really is what's the name on the... Well, is it printed in a newspaper? Because like... Yeah. Yeah, I don't even know where you'd really draw that line, I guess. There's a certain crowd of people who read 9to5Mac and read other sites they get really annoyed and say you're not a journalist when you do like i was talking about like the the wit and the humor and the sarcasm you put in a story yeah and i think that's why i'm hesitant to call myself a journalist just because i'd rather be a quote-unquote blogger and make my stories interesting than follow like the ap guidelines on x y and z and like you don't do this you don't do that yeah it's i guess it's like a blend of because like an opinion opinion they would be journalists right somebody who writes for an opinion section in a newspaper yeah they would still consider themselves a journalist right but those are often filled with personal anecdotes and everything but what you all are writing about frequently is is hard news really mm-hmm. um and so but having that personal bit in there is part of the fun and it's also i personally think it's an important element when you're reading something like 
yes, if it's a like, you know, one paragraph article in a physical newspaper about some announcement, mm-hmm. sure, that can be as hard news as possible because it's literally just the facts fit into as small of an amount of text as you can. But once it turns into a true article, it's going to have that person's opinion in there. Like it's going to color how they, how they talk about it. And so when it, when it comes to like you all writing something, if I know it's coming from nine to five or a YouTuber, you know, if it's MKBHD or whatever, talking about Mm -hmm. something, part of the reason why I like reading from those sources consistently is I know their angle. I know their personalities. So if they say something, even if I disagree, it's like, oh, I know that they don't usually like, they think most phones are too heavy. So them saying this phone's too heavy doesn't matter to me because I don't mm-hmm. agree with that exactly. way that they view things. So I think having that, I, I guess this comes back to the the relationship piece. Um, blogging, typically, it feels like there's more of a personality. And when you know what that personality is, it helps you contextualize what you're reading and where that person's coming from. I like to think that when somebody goes to 9to5Mac, they... Even more so than they recognize the 9to5Mac name, they recognize our writer names, whether that's me or Zach or Michael. Mm. They they know how... They know why Zach chose to write a particular story or why I chose to write a particular story. They know I'm really big in recently like writing about CarPlay. Like I've been covering CarPlay a lot recently. And I think a lot. I thought of you were going to say Coldplay. No, yeah. <laughs> and when you said CarPlay, I thought it was like a weird accent thing at first, and I was like, "What in the world?" Oh, CarPlay, Car right, right. <laughs> but if people do also Coldplay, though, if people do see Coldplay, I like to use Coldplay in like my featured images when I'm taking screenshots yeah. of something. Then that also that's gives it usually, away. Usually, that's how I know it's an article from you before yeah. I even see who wrote it. Uh. <laughs> but one of the things too about like the blogger versus journalism distinction is like today I posted a story. It was kind of a stupid story. I don't know, not stupid, but iPhone pre iPhone 15 event kind of filler content. And the headline was iPhone 15 dummy units show off the most boring color options ever, which is a Uh, a little bit clickbaity, but also like if I was writing for the New York times, I wouldn't have been able to, yes, to say that, use that angle. I'll say this too, like as somebody who uh, who likes understanding the feeling within the community at any given point, um, you all, and probably because you all are integrated throughout the community in the podcast spheres and the different blogger spheres and stuff, uh, I feel like it's like an like a headline like that, for example, that doesn't just tell me you know, these colors are boring or whatever. It also tells me the general sentiment in the crowd is probably that the colors are boring. Yeah, exactly. And like when I, like I was on a two week vacation over the summer and so I missed just a bunch of news, but the only thing I would really keep up with was my RSS feed. And I feel like I, I, it actually helped me kind of contextualize when I came back to all the podcasts and stuff. Yeah. What the general sentiment was because of headlines like that. And we're all exposed to, I'm exposed to hearing other people's opinions on podcasts or on other sites and they're exposed to our opinions. And it's, I think it's just a really healthy relationship when you know what everybody thinks of something. If I know there's a certain crowd of people that really dislikes this feature, this change Apple is going to make, I know that I, if I disagree, I can make my case and they can make their case and readers can choose and they get both sides of the story. 
it's like the perfect balance of right disagreement, but it's a healthy disagreement and it's make sure we're not like in an echo chamber of just regurgitating the factual angle on the news versus taking the temperature of your own opinions and everybody else's. Right. Yeah. And I, there's definitely a place for the, you know, the people in our community who like don't engage with everybody else. And so their opinions are less, you know, colored by all that context. Um, but I think the, what, you know, nine to five or some of these blogs, uh, part of the service that they provide is at, like, you know, you're curating all of this content, all of this news about this community into a single feed. And that, that is part of the value is understanding what all that context is and bringing that into everything you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. You've, you've been editor in chief for, has, it's been over 10 years, right? I've been at nine to five Mac for 10 years. Oh, okay. That makes more sense. Okay. But you've been the nine to five Mac three and a half. That's right. Cause 2019. Yeah. But you've been at nine to five for over 10 years. And, uh, this year for the first time, right? You got to go to WWDC and yes. you got like a media badge, right? First time ever that I've been invited nine to five Mac as a site. We, I don't know if we've ever been invited to WWDC. We've been invited. We were invited to the iPhone 10 event. So that was 2017. Then we were invited to the services event in 2019 but other than that, we've never really been in the good favor of Apple in terms of event invites. What do you think, like, obviously this is tea leave reading, you can't actually know, but like, why do you think this time, you know, was it because of the Vision Pro for some reason? Yes, I think it was 100% because of Vision Pro, because I I expected after the WWDC announcement or the WWC, WWDC invite that we were back in the good graces and we hopefully would be getting invites to every event, but we didn't get an iPhone event invite for next month. So I think from what I heard based on a couple conversations with people in Apple PR, there was a push to invite the sites like nine to five Mac and Mac rumors and Apple insider to have them there for the vision pro just because of our audiences and the audiences that we reach. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely just like full court press. The thing is, it wasn't like, oh, okay, we're just going to like invite literally everybody. I mean, you were one of, what was it? Three people in that first kind of group that got to try it. Yeah, that was, that's why I'm really confused about the iPhone event situation. (laughs) Because it's what you, uh, Matthew Panzerino, John Gruber. Is that the group? Joanna. Joanna Stern. Oh, Joanna Stern. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, that's That's so crazy. That's what's like Apple event invites WWDC. I was kind of expecting to get one just based on what I'd heard from my Apple PR contacts. But before that, I was never like mad or frustrated that we didn't really get an invite because I didn't expect it. Yeah. But then you go to WWDC and you have great access. You're the first to try a brand new product category and you're impressed with it, you write positively about it because it was a good demo, then you just, I don't want to get too negative, but it kind of feels like Apple uses certain people and kicks them to the curb when they no longer need them because they don't need us to. 
back to our conversation about companies uh, aren't, you know, people. Yeah, like, exactly. I think I think you know very much so. Apple PR and any PR, I think it's it's a healthy way to always view that as that is a. I guess use is a is true, but it, it's a mutual using, right? I mean, yeah, it goes both true. ways. Yeah, uh, and so. I think they are a hundred percent thinking of it that way because the power imbalance is in their favor. But you know, if, if like if you're the Wall Street Journal, you probably are thinking of like, all right, Apple's got to convince us to come to this thing, and Apple's also thinking uh, we're going to send an invite to that. Part. Like, it's a little bit more of a mutual relationship, maybe just in terms of size, um, not money size, but you know what I mean, right? Influence size, I don't know, uh, but. But yeah, it's, I think from their perspective, it's always, and this goes for features too. Like at the end of the day, Apple's a company and I do think that they care about having a vibrant like app scene Mm -hmm. within indies within that scene. And so they do feature indies and stuff for that. But it's, it's always important to remember that that's, it's a business decision that they're making. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. It can be hard not to, though. <laughs> yeah, it's it's such a tricky balance because, like you said, the power imbalance is just so out of whack for the most part. Yeah. I think uh, one interesting thing I've seen recently, in my, I don't know, time is confusing. It's not recent, but The Verge did their thing where they wouldn't take comments on background from yeah PR at companies anymore. And Apple loves background. Apple will not mm. tell you. They call you about something mundane or like, something stupid and they're like this call is on background do you agree and if you say no they hang up the call but somehow like the verge had enough power right unless you're the verge or the new york times or you know there's certain groups that can get away with that yeah and like the verge had that power somehow in that relationship to like institute that policy and they're they're quoting the same pr people i talk to who i can't name in my stories yeah they can yeah, it's yeah, it's kind of wild. I mean, I guess it's the same. Uh, we haven't talked about it at all, but like Mark Gurman, you know, oh, famous yeah. uh, Apple leaker, came through the. He's a nine to five Mac alum, I guess is what you he call is. that. He is. You know, he spends a, a career uh, building relationships and all these contacts and everything. And once you've amassed that, you know. Uh, Power makes it sound worse than what I mean, but you know what I mean? It's like, it is an asset to have. Um, I think the same goes for any, you know, major publication or something. It's like, yeah, if you can grow big enough, you can wield that power to, to do bad things. But also I, like I think in the Verge's case, I mean, to be honest, I don't know that much about journalistic ethics, but it sounds like the ability to say you won't take anything on background. That sounds like a positive thing. Oh, it Um, is. It is. It's a very positive thing. But it must be frustrating when, you know, they can say that, but they'll still get the goods. Uh, and then everybody else gets the same information, but isn't allowed to actually print it. Yeah, that's exactly it. And we, one of the reasons we've like gotten in, like Apple PR has gotten basically cut us off a few times over the years is just because of, we cover the rumor side of things. Yeah. But if you notice when there's, a rumor and it's like a not a small rumor but like a mid-tier to big rumor the verge is going to cover it it's like going to oh, get yeah. picked up 
but because I guess because we originate a lot of them, then that's why we they get kind of vindictive towards us. But to their credit, I mean, we have better relationships now than we've had in in years since 2019, probably. Well, that's yeah, that's good to hear. And obviously, I mean, uh, you know, a single example, but still an example of that is is you getting that invite for 2023. And let I want to talk about that for a minute. Mm-hmm. Like, what was that experience like? Obviously, there's the Vision Pro side of it. And if you haven't read uh, Chance's article, you should just stop this, uh, assuming you're mm-hmm. not driving or something, and go read it. Because it's 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 probably my favorite piece of uh, content about the Vision Pro because it encapsulated my feelings a little bit because there was just this sort of excitement about being there and yeah. uh, you walk through your whole experience of getting to try it. Um, and I remember exactly where I was sitting you know, on a couch talking to some people and everybody goes, oh, 9 to 5 has an article. And then everybody <laughs> just got silent while everybody sat there and read it because it was our first is the first thing we got, you know. Um, but other than other than that thing, what was just being there like? It was a combination of both incredibly fun, incredibly overwhelming, and incredibly draining. Like I'm a very introverted person in general. And to not only go to the event for the first time, but to go for such a big event, and then to have the Vision Pro demo, then race back to write about it. It was a whirlwind of a week. But it was so fun. I got to I met so many different people. I met you. I met just so many people. Because I've never been to WWDC, even like just as somebody who comes for the side conferences or whatever. So this was my first time at Apple Park, first time in Cupertino. Have you ever been in a physical space with a group of more than like three people that really care about <laughs> no, Apple no. software? Never. That alone is such a crazy feeling. It, when I got there on the Saturday or the Sunday before I went to the visitor center just to check it out, I was by myself, just was kind of walking around. Then I look over and all of a sudden David Smith is walking up to me to say hi. And that was when it kind of kicked in. And it was like, oh, people are here. Like the people I talk to on the internet, like they're here. <laughs> they're real. They're real. And they're talking to me. And then, like <laughs> here comes Mike and Federico. And it's like, this is weird. It's like a mind mind trip to a certain degree. Yes. I that is a hundred percent. I mean, I've only been to two. Yeah. Uh, that was my second one, but similar experience where it's just like uh, you feel like you're gawking, sort of. But yeah. It's, it's people that in the internet sphere I think of as peers, sort of. But then it's like, but you don't feel real in this way. Um, and we're literally just standing here, you know, talking about stuff yeah and uh, it sounds really dumb saying it out loud but it yeah it really is a overwhelming like emotional experience my wife when i got there and I, she said is mkbhd gonna be there and i was like yeah i assume so and she said you should go find him and send a picture and take a picture with him and i was like i'm not gonna do that <laughs> but she was like even she said even i know who mkbhd is and i said yeah lots of people do <laughs> I've heard that like when he goes into the press area, he still gets swarmed oh, yeah. by people wanting selfies and stuff. I assume that was also your experience. Getting swarmed and at people asking for selfies. Oh, 100%. Yeah, just swarmed by, yeah. You're just constantly signing autographs and taking uh, selfies. I mean, that's why I had to walk around the talk show with you because people kept bothering yeah. me. You had to- <laughs> I, I, I scared everybody away. Yeah. <laughs> 
No, that was Jeremy Bird sitting with Jeremy Burge at the talk show and he the big Australian accent. Nobody's gonna mess with you when you're talking to an Australian. So uh there you go. <laughs> well that's awesome. Uh so I guess I guess to wrap it up, let's let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the Vision Pro then. Yeah. This is you know, you've been you've been at nine to five for ten years. So what that would have been like twenty thirteen ish. So it was after the iPad came out. Yes. So this is definitely the sort of biggest moment in apple's history whatever you want to call it where you've been sort of on the beat how how does it feel leading into it like there's obviously been anticipation for it for forever does it feel any different or does it feel like something big is happening so in the in the lead up to w well first of all it was rumored for so long and i think it was first rumored to come out in like 2020 then it was like 2021 2022 early 2023 then it was wwdc so honestly, by the time it was actually about to happen, I was kind of burnt out on the idea of yeah Vision Pro and a headset. That was a common feeling. Yeah. But I think seeing what they announced at WWDC and then trying it kind of brought me back into like, okay, like take off your, I cover, I cover Apple rumors for a living. Like I've been more in tune with this for years and I'm tired of it and put on like from a, a hat that's like from a technological standpoint, from a, I don't know, from like a use case standpoint, from a real world, like this is a product now. And that's when it was like, okay, this is great. Like I put aside the feelings of burnout about writing about rumors and try the product. And that's when it clicked. Man, I can't wait to try it out. Um, the general sentiment seems to be that Everybody comes out of it in sort of this floating cloud. When I <laughs> met you, you were, you know, your feet were actually still hovering yeah, off yeah. the ground a little bit. Uh, it, it just seems like the before and after way people talk about it is very different. Do you still feel that now, or has it has that sort of euphoria or whatever you want to call it wa- washed off a little bit? I still feel it, and I've I've talked about this a little bit on our Happy Hour podcast with uh, my co-host Benjamin Mayo. My biggest thing, and Apple just did this, is they need to keep like pushing it. You know, like they can't, they announced yeah. it at WWDC, but it's not coming out until early 2024. If they go months at a time without like reminding people that Vision Pro exists, then that's when like the hype starts to wear off a little bit, even as somebody who's tried it. Like last week, they did the thing where they published the quotes from developers. Right. That was great. Like hearing like David Smith and Michael Simmons talk about, their experiences, I was like, okay, yep. That's what I remember. And that's why I'm so optimistic about this product. Yeah. Two, two launched alums, actually. Uh, it's, oh, yeah. It's, this show has been going yeah. long enough now that uh, every once in a while stuff happens like that where it's like, oh my gosh, like I've literally had that person on the <laughs> show before. It feels, it feels very weird. And, well, coming out of the Vision Pro demo too at WWDC, like I was like blown away by what I'd just seen, but I was really nervous that I had kind of got swept up in it. Yeah. Cause basically how it happened is I knew I had an Apple briefing like 20 minutes after the keynote ended. I didn't know what that Apple briefing was. All I know is I had one. I found my PR person. I got on a golf cart and they took me to like the special building where the vision pro demos were. It's like until I walked in that room, I didn't know that I was going to get to try it let alone try it so soon after the event. 
Right. You're thinking just like traditional briefing. Like yeah. you can ask some questions and we'll not give you any real answers. Honestly, I was worried uh, that it was going to be one of those briefings where they just talk about how much money the app store makes for developers <laughs> that they make a sit through. And I was like, <laughs> it's like has nothing to do with actually. Yeah. Uh, I, I know some people that had briefings scheduled after and they thought they were getting a demo and they got in there and it was something completely unrelated and <laughs> they were like maybe in a different time i would have been excited but i was just so yeah. done with this meeting <laughs> it was interesting i was talking to federico and he was talking about it on connected where he he had the vision pro demo and he went into it not having read anybody else's coverage and purposefully mm. not reading anybody else's coverage because he wanted to write it like in a silo not being influenced by other people being really positive about it yeah. And when I I realized that that's kind of the experience I had too because of being so early. There was nobody else. Yeah. I That's why when I published it and it was relatively positive, I was like if I publish this and it's positive and then MKBHD's video comes out in 3 hours and he hated it. Oh, yeah. I, like, I mean, I stand by what I wrote, but at that point I would be really scared that I got caught up in the hype caught up in the moment right you don't want to be the like uh you know i got the first invite i've ever gotten exactly and yeah. now i'm just a shill for you know the man <laughs> the man they they graced me with their presence yeah no that's interesting but no i mean y the way you described it was exactly how it felt like everybody else described yeah. it afterwards i think i only saw like one relatively negative take and that i think that was the new york times but even then mm. That was more of a anti VR VR general like, rant. Yeah. Like, well, that's the thing. That's the weird thing about it is like I think there's there's separate conversations to this product and how it was designed and how it will fulfill its purposes. And then like, okay, if this thing actually works, right? And like everybody has one of these in ten years or something. What is that? What does society look like? Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. We'll have you know a couple decades of what we've gone through with the phones of like screen time and all these features yes being really popular because people are like how do we manage living with these things now um and those are good conversations to have like i don't i think that level of skepticism is good to have and i think there's um, still a level of skepticism about a level of skepticism about just what are people going to use this for where yeah. does this fit it's at least like especially with version one like it's not going to replace the mac for most people it's not going to replace an iphone it's a new product category that I don't think we really know how Apple wants us to use it and how we can actually use it and what the what the ecosystem around it will be. That's the that's the million dollar question is like not not what's the killer app because I think I think we're all kind of over like there wasn't the killer iPhone app it was yeah. other than like Safari or whatever but really it was the it's a platform that's what that's what the killer thing is and it can be like an incredible technological feat like vision pro as a hardware product but then be a complete flop as a as a like consumer device exactly right it can blow yeah, you like away. in my head the best case scenario really is like something like not not best case scenario what i see as a realistic positive scenario is if it can achieve something like an ipad where it's like there's like what is what is the ipad's killer use case it's like well it's all these weird separate things like it's it's a kiosk everywhere it's uh when my you know uh 
landscaping person, not landscape, my like bug person comes yeah. and or somebody comes to repair my AC and they need to fill out the form afterwards. It's always an iPad yep. and this big rubber container thing. Like it is such a convenient, portable computing device thing. Um, I can imagine something like that where it's like it's hard to even think of what the use cases really are now, but it's just a bunch of these little small use cases. I still have a hard time imagining it as in its current form as something mm-hmm. individuals would really use that much just because of how much it cuts you off from the world, even though they've clearly designed it to be about not cutting yeah. off from the world. But it's like your eyes are covered. Like at the end of the day, your eyes are covered and it's two hours of battery life unless you want to sit by. Yeah. That too. Let's- I also, this is my own personal pet peeve. Uh, there are, at least three people listening that will laugh as soon as I say this, but I'm not convinced that the resolution could possibly be high enough to be good for like reading text. Yeah. Just because like it, it phys- the physics don't make sense to me in terms of how many pixels they say there are and how big the field of view it has to represent is. When I published my piece, that was like one of the biggest quest, like first questions people were asking. And it's one of those things where, your memory gets a little bit hazy. It's like, yeah. I don't remember seeing any pixels, but were there? Like, were the edges blurry? What I've just said is that if it wasn't bad enough for me to remember it, then I think it was good. But when right. you have a 30-minute demo with everything crammed in there and two Apple PR people standing over your shoulder, it's you're going to forget some things. Yeah, exactly. And I've heard people say it's totally fine. I've heard yeah. a couple people say, uh, you know, it's like a somewhat low resolution monitor but like for most for a lot of people that's still totally fine so it's not it's it's just like this weird little pet peeve thing where it's like i don't quite see how it could possibly be what we consider retina yeah Um, but at the end of the day we'll see i i don't think it's really it's intended use cases for reading books anyway um although there's a part of me that likes the idea of like if i'm laying in bed i don't have to hold a book up i can just like keep my arms you know down to the side you just uh, need one of those 12 dollar mounts that they sell on amazon that you like clip to the side of your bed and i just had that thought and i was like that way you don't have to look goofy with this you know little uh, <laughs> like mount thing and then i realized i'm talking about putting a headset with google ai's uh projected on the front basically so i'm like well maybe <laughs> you're gonna look <laughs> yeah. goofy no matter what you do <laughs> so are you planning to get one you think look chance i need one for my job yeah me too I've been practicing that line. Did I did I deliver it? I well? think uh, I think it was con- <laughs> I think it was convincing. I'm sold. I'll here, I'll just send you the money right now. All right. Perfect. Perfect. No, yeah, I I I almost definitely will get one. Yeah. Um because I'll I will for sure bring dark noise in some capacity to it. Uh, I have plans for what it could be, but everything that I can think of, like I'd have to have a device. I can't yeah. I can't do it in the simulator at all. So the bigger plans might have to wait until after there's a real device and I can get one in my hands and, you know, actually play with it. But that's one of the advantages of having an app as a side hustle and it not being your main source yeah. of income is you can be a little less uh, financially uh, prudent uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when it comes to those decisions. Cause it's like, Oh yeah, I need it uh, for my job. And you know, it's fine, but yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it all works out, but I- I'm excited to see how it all goes. No, I'm very excited. You said you mentioned when we started talking about, this being like the biggest Apple thing in my time at 9to5Mac. And I think that's absolutely true. And I think it's such an interesting like 
situation too, because what comes out next year is only the beginning. Like that sounds cheesy, but right. this is version one and version one to version two to version three is going to be a much bigger, a much bigger evolution than like Apple watch series one, series two. And there's so much, uh, like weight behind the, the arrow. Is that the right word? Like yeah. they have invested so much money up front. This isn't like a home pod where it's going to come out and maybe it doesn't do as well as they like. And so they just kind of let it sit for a while. It's like, they literally can't at this point, they're going to do, they're going to follow through on the swing. Uh, and it might be a really, really big miss, but it'll be entertaining to watch no matter what. Yep. That's what I've said. I've said that a lot is that it's going to be fun if it is a success and it's going to be fun if it's a flop. I don't. Yeah. And it it feels like one of those things where it's like when that much money and talent are, are all focused so well on like a single thing like this. Mm-hmm. Um, even if this fails, this is a story that will end up in future tech stories for decades because it'll be like, oh, actually, the first device that used XYZ technology was this thing. And it was for this, this failed, is famously failed, you know, Apple product or whatever. Like, no matter what, it's such a big swing that, uh, you, you can't turn your eyes away from it because it's going to have some kind of impact, even if this product isn't it. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, <laughs> I guess we kind of turned into a, a little bit of a like <laughs> tech podcast uh, yeah. there, but I feel like it's adjacent enough that I can get away with it. We talked about the uh, feelings a little bit. We... Yeah. 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 So uh, before, before we wrap this up, uh, I'm going to ask you the question I ask everybody to end the show, which is, uh, what's a person or people out there that have inspired you that you'd recommend others check out? Ooh, I've been bracing for this question. It's a hard question. I think in terms of like in this Apple community, I wouldn't be where I am without first and foremost, like working with Mark Gurman and our publisher, Seth Weintraub. They both do excellent work. Mark's the best. He's the ace Apple reporter. And he working with him for the few years I got to work with him was like such a, such a learning experience and seeing how he managed a team and how he could turn a story around so quickly. And with so much information, what made, what makes him so good? Cause yeah, I've heard that it's not just like leaks. It it yeah. seems like there is a reverence for him with the people that have worked with him before. He's the, the passion that he has for what he does is like crazy, especially for how long he's been doing it. And I think that probably extends to how he's able to get these sources and maintain these sources over the years. He's very good at just developing those relationships to where a source knows that they can go to Mark. They can talk to Mark and Mark's not going to burn them. Mm, he's yeah. got such an established reputation and has done such great work at Bloomberg that people trust him, both people like us and then also people inside Apple. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And it, it, speaking of like, what we kind of talked about earlier where, you know, it's nice to know the person who's publishing a thing because you can say, sort of see it through their lens. I feel like he's been around for so long now that like when you see German on a piece, uh, you know how to contextualize what you're about to read, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's a trust that what you're reading is, uh, has his name behind it. And like, he will phrase things a specific way based on, yeah, is this, 
is this information that I feel confident about? Is this information I don't feel confident about? And yeah, uh, he's definitely earned a strong reputation. The way he writes is like, sometimes it's just so hard to parse though. It's like, does he know this? <laughs> does he not know this? Yeah. Why is this in the newsletter versus on Bloomberg.com? Like that has definitely added a layer of confusion sometimes. Cause yeah, they've gotten more personal, uh, now that he has the newsletter. Yeah. Sometimes we just message him on, on, on iMessage and be like, is this like, can you clarify this? <laughs> yeah, that's a helpful, that's a helpful connection to have. Beyond Mark, I think I really admire like other independent publishers. Like 9to5Mac is completely independent. We don't have, uh, we're not owned by anybody. So when I see other people who are able to like operate uh, independent media blogging journalist website in 2023 it's like like i just admire that like mac stories is one of the best examples of that what yeah federico and john are able to do is just the fact that federico can take so long to write such a great like mega review every year speaks like a lot to how mac stories operates and how well they know their readers and how well they know their business yeah, because those each one of those is high risk, right? Yeah, because if you take way less shots, they better be they better be good. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's so tricky to compare like what we do with Mac stories and just because they are different different styles. But I think we have I think nine to five Mac in particular has kind of steered a little bit towards like you were saying at the start with the curation and the vetting of stories before they go up. That's something I've really taken away from Mac stories and what Federico and John choose to post versus what they don't post. Yeah. How well they're able to offer those details and their opinions and all of that combined with the story itself. Those are definitely, uh, those are definitely good ones. Uh, and yeah, I, I, I really love the, I mean, obviously I love the like Apple community generally, but oh, it's, it's I the think best. that extends into the, the, press news blog sphere of the apple community just as much uh there's it, it it covers the spectrum of you know big bloggers like i i love the verge you know yeah uh but down to obviously nine to five mac and then down to you know like matt birchler or like yeah all these matt. you know one-off bloggers who are also putting out really really high quality stuff i think um it's it's cool how much you all work together too or at least live in the same space and communicate together. Um, and so I, I appreciate all the work that you all do. And I literally, I will probably uh, refresh nine to five Mac as soon as I get off here, <laughs> uh, this call, because it's just kind of ingrained in my habit. Like I haven't checked the internet in a while. Has anything major happened? It really is the best community. I mean, I could go on for hours, like naming people who inspire me and who I admire Jason Snell, all of the relay guys. It's just, the community and especially somebody like Jason Snell, who's been such a staple of this community for so long. Yeah. And through different mediums. Yeah. Through, oh, yeah. Through long live the magazine, but <laughs> it's, I don't know. The whole community is just so supportive and we all, I think lift each other up and I'm just proud to that nine to five Mac and that me personally can like be in this community, help to a certain degree, like shape the community. And then also just be so supportive. Getting to write like on 9to5Mac, getting to write about the St. Jude fundraiser for Relay. 
Yeah. Seeing yeah, everybody. That's always a good moment coming up soon. It's already live. It's live. Oh, it is live. Man, I didn't I didn't know there was uh, an Apple event announcement until the end of the day yesterday. Uh, that's how disconnected I've been. It's been a crazy week. So, okay, I missed that. This It's because Twitter. You don't use Twitter as much. That's where you would have found out. No, well, yeah, I do. Uh, sadly, I do still use... Yeah. Uh, uh, just a side note before I let you go. I really appreciate that this whole episode, we've just referred to it as Twitter. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, I, I just plan on keeping using that word as long as I can get away with it. I refuse um, to just say X. Also, X is like a hard <laughs> word to say on a podcast. It's like... Yeah. It doesn't have a good mouth no, feel. Not know? at all. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, I will let you go. But uh, before I do... <laughs> Where can people find you in your work, Chance? Speaking uh, editor of, in chief of Nine to Five yeah. Mac. <laughs> I'm on all of the great social networks: Twitter, Mastodon, and Threads. I'm at Chance H Miller. Otherwise, it's just Nine to Five Mac dot com. I host two podcasts: Nine to Five Mac Daily and Nine to Five Mac Happy Hour. So, I think I think people should check those out. I don't know. I think they're good, but yeah, that's where I am. Thanks for listening. This episode was edited by Jonathan Ruiz. If you'd like to discuss the show, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Chucky C or tweet the show directly at launched.fm. I'd really appreciate a rating or review in your podcast app of choice. And you can find show notes and more at launched.fm.com. <laughs>